Welcome to Making Waves, a radio program about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. In this edition of Making Waves, we continue our feature of the Soundplay series. Soundplay is a series of performances and installations at the NASA space in Toronto. It combines image and sound and happens until November 3rd. Later in the program, we will play pieces from Soundplay by three Canadian sound artists, Sarah Peebles, Vanessa Sorslevec, and Nora Lorway. But first, we're going to speak with Kyle Duffield and Danielle Hopkins about their installation, Hive, which is running in the NASA space until November 1st. Hive is an interactive sound sculpture. It has a cylindrical shape that hangs from the ceiling, almost like a chandelier, except that it's very industrial-looking, made of chicken wire, and uh, the structure is supported by the rims of bicycle wheels. And many loudspeakers are attached uh, to the chicken wesh on all sides. The sounds from the speakers is a multi-layered electronic composition inspired by the sounds of wasps. The piece is also interactive in that it uses ultrasonic sensors uh, that detect the presence of the audience and varies the uh, volume and other parameters of the music. Here's a kind of a quick demo example of Hive, produced by Hopkins Duffield. example of the sound sculpture Hive by Hopkins Duffield. And here is what they uh, say about the piece in their notes. Hive explores convergences between technology and nature by employing wasp architectures created from found and fabricated technological parts and scraps. Hive is an empty sculptural entity that replaces insects with sound creating an organism-instrument-speaker hybrid. Kyle Duffield is a Toronto-based intermedia artist who works in a range of mediums, including painting, interactive installation, gaming, and video. Danielle Hopkins is a multidisciplinary Toronto artist who takes a surrealistic approach to audio-video compositions, ballpoint pen illustrations, and sculptural dioramas made from insect bodies and materials. In my conversation with them, we discussed the relationship of Hive to their work and interests in both gaming and art installations. Perhaps as a way of introduction, maybe uh, uh, both of you can uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and your background and and um, how you came together. Well, uh, we are Hopkins Duffield. 
Um, I'm Kyle Duffield. And I'm Danielle Hopkins. Um, my background is mainly in um, interactive audio video installation. Uh, my background is more so in gaming. Um, which sounds potentially like a strange combo for some of what we do, but um, it actually works because um, gaming um, is a bridge between um, interactivity and how people engage with uh, a technological medium. How did we get together? Uh, we both went to an arts high school and we met there and have worked together since. Primarily, I guess your work is for a, a gallery or installation context. Um, and uh, what does that provide that uh, the gaming world doesn't? We don't necessarily make um, video games in like a traditional like, oh, kind of like you sit down in front of your TV um, gaming context. We look more to um, open public. So we've been combining notions of kind of art installation with with gaming concepts and where that overlap exists and how you're engaging the public. But um, part of it comes with is we're less interested in the idea of um, a home theater kind of consumption and a space that you physically have to be present to experience the piece, um, often in a multi-sensory fashion. Right. Well, what are the overlaps between uh, the installation context and the gaming context? Um, well, primarily it's just um, even if you look at the way um, people are detected, if you look at um, gaming, this might be a kind of a grand sweeping statement where that someone may criticize, but there's been a lot of inter in innovation in accessible interfaces um, that people use to engage in a technological medium. For example, like when it gets to um, something that's um, for consumers to have access to in terms of full body tracking. Um, people are very familiar with these types of technologies in a gaming context, and um, they may be less so in outside of that context, like more in public spaces. So, um, And also in terms of hardware accessibility, the idea of being able to use hardware that's created for gaming to facilitate a certain interaction in an installation context. Right. Well, what about, uh, it seems to me that in the installation context, there's more of a chance of there being a group or even a mass of people, um, whereas the gaming context to me seems more limited to uh, either an individual or a very small group of people. I would actually have to disagree with that. Um, I mean, part of um, gaming actually... Um, I mean, okay, it depends on the context of gaming because we have like something that's arcade gaming, which is, you know, it's less popular in North America than it was before. Um, but people come together in a social space and would play uh, often in competitive ways, which is not what we often uh, bring into our installations. Um, but, but there has been a social aspect in the idea of the um, arcade sense, but even with the prevalence of online gaming, if you look at all the major consoles as well as um, PC gaming, a lot of it is, incorporates a multiplayer aspect. From the point of view of the physical interface in an installation context, you know, the view or, the, or the, the amount of users could be very, very wide, could be on a very mass uh, size. And uh, whereas uh, with the 
uh, gaming experience, I get the sense it's more for a smaller number of users or even an individual to be inputting uh, the physical uh, data at, at that time. Uh, if that's true, then then how how that how you navigate those differences in terms of applying uh, gaming concepts into an installation context? Well, there's a a couple approaches there. Um, first up, I would slightly argue that when it comes more to uh, full body gaming, I mean it it obviously depends on the interface, but when we're getting into um, tracking users, um, a lot of that it's increasingly sought to incorporate a multiplayer element. Um, the next is that um, some, I mean, I think part of the point before is that a lot of these technologies are the cutting edge of what is allowing that in an accessible way without, um, let's say necessarily, and this may sound bad, but necessarily the most top of the, the most sophisticated interfaces for tracking, which are sometimes difficult to uh, come by as artists. Uh, if you take something like the Connect or something like that and applying it to an installation context, is there an adaptation involved in, in utilizing that technology in an installation context? We were originally trying to use the Connect for this Hive piece. Um, our idea was that we we're going to use floor tracking. Um, the Connect is fantastic in that it does infrared tracking, so we could sense depth and track users on a floor. But it would have been more blob tracking rather than actual full body tracking, so it would be able to track potentially multiple points and multiple people without having to identify a full person in the way that it would for certain games. Um, so in this way, it's accessible. And what we actually used instead of this was an Arduino and ultrasonic sensors. And he may state, okay, well, how does this relate back to um, gaming interfaces? Because in Arduino and ultrasonic sensors, these aren't gaming interfaces. However, because um, the specific piece we're talking about, Hive, um, in this case, although we do work with gaming concepts in um, multiple pieces, so, for example, um, Hive has many um, ultrasonic sensors, and it's proximity-based, and people can approach it from different angles. However, um, due to the scope of the sensors, you would get a different effect if there are multiple people in the room. So one can experience the piece individually and get um, an interactive effect, but they can open up a different kind of a conversation as other people enter the space and um, engage with the piece simultaneously. In the case of Hive, the the result changes the music or the, the way the music's either played or, um, or heard in the space. There's similar strategies being done in the gaming culture nowadays with, with um, interactivity not necessarily linked to a narrative. Well, in the case of interactivity and gaming, I think that's a bit open-ended because um, how the player in, um, engages with the piece, regardless of the hardware, can change a variety of things. Like, it could change narrative. Um, when you're dealing with games, you're working more with engines and systems. Um, and I think that's where it gets really difficult to describe. Um, for example, like there have been um, experiments in gaming where I, I forget, unfortunately, the exact name of it, but where um, people can log on and all control one character. The, the greater proportion of people controlling this one character guides what it does in the game physically. 
So this is something that doesn't necessarily guide the uh, narrative. I mean, it affects the narrative um, in that people will experience it through uh, collaboration or um, also sabotage. Um, so once again, I, I think that's a very open-ended uh, question because gaming is also very open-ended and an emerging medium. Is there a place for the gaming context to exist in the art context? Uh, the art context seems to have any uh, presupposed uh, venues, uh, art gallery, a concert hall, etc., uh, etc. Et but um, it hasn't adapted, I'd say, as easily to the electronic uh, context. Um. I would disagree with that. I, I feel like there are multiple communities even within Toronto that are trying to point out where things like art and gaming can converge. And we've been involved in the past in with a group called Vector Game Art Festival. And that's their whole purpose is to bring bring art and games together and bring those conversations into the same room. So for example, like uh, Vector, which is... Um... In its third year now, um, what it tries to do is bring some of the uh, critical discourses of art and bring uh, games, um, especially independent games, into a gallery context. Um, and experimental works that kind of exist somewhere between the two. Yeah, I, I, the similarity between interactive art and gaming is that, once again, you're dealing with a system. Um, people can approach the system. You're creating an interface. but you can play with it however you want. Um, the same interface can be used to make an advertisement that can be used to make um, an interactive art installation. Um, not that obviously gaming is um, an advertisement or anything. It's just stating that um, technology can be used in a variety of contexts and um, people can often do to start to experiment with it uh, once they get their hands on it. So, Do you find that in... When you go, when you move through different contexts, that you have audiences of with different expectations. Is that a juggle, or is there a, or is there actually a synergy uh, in both the gaming uh, context and the and the uh, say art installation context? There's a bit of a juggle, but it, it's also what can um, be very interesting because you can start to bridge communities. Some com communities are more willing to engage with each other than others, um, and that happens with, I think, any kind of cultural sect. But in general, um, we found that the communities that we dwell in, everyone has been very uh, supportive and open-minded. And I uh, wanted to uh, talk more about uh, Hive itself. The uh, the metaphor of the Hive, and you know, this is this uh, kind of loudspeaker sculpture with speakers and sensors attached to it and uh, it has this kind of cage-like shape. Where are some of the inspirations for that image? Uh, where, where do they emerge from? We're very interested in, in insects in general and in the structures that hive creatures create. And we were focusing on paper wasps and the way that they retrieve materials from all around them and form it into a structure. When you deal with um, technology, at least in the way that we do, um, it often feels like a scavenger hunt, whether it be uh, physical <laughs> materials or code or like things just kind of uh, can start to combine into a specific aesthetic. So, so we end up with bike rims and speakers and 
chicken, chicken mash. mash. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it all um, comes together into well, what we think it's a cohesive form. But <laughs> <laughs> was the so were the materials sort of found at different times and sat there for a while before they took a shape. Uh, yes and no. So, some of them, like the, the bikes were my old personal childhood bikes that we ripped apart because nobody's using them anymore. And how do we wrap that up? We we just figured out uh, chicken wire would be a good idea because it could hold our wires. Um, but on the other end of things, for example, the speakers were uh, purchased um, because um, from a design and functionality standpoint, you had to get uh, the power and impedances correctly so that it, I mean, so that it's just much easier to um, essentially not blow a speaker or damage an amp. <laughs> so like there are, there are design and functional considerations that were taken into place because it um, is a piece that does um, like requires a bit of metic meticulous design to make it function properly. So the uh, so I guess in a way the the shape of the sculpture is a kind of uh, uh, invitation to reflect on the notion of sound uh, of the sound being a hive because the sound is not a literal representation of a hive uh, it's a kind of electronic uh, interpretation if you will is that was that is that accurate to say definitely yeah. what was behind the impulse of going that that route of making a electronic hive as opposed to a literal uh, you know sound of wasps or bees it's almost as if um using specific sounds of wasps or bees would have been too literal <laughs> when you're dealing with a technological representation of nature i feel like it the um original form that you're trying to represent is already abstracted to a degree part of it's also um after hooking it essentially all up is what felt intuitive as the type of sound aesthetic that should come from it. Um, so it is seven channels. All seven channels play different um, rhythms. And we wanted to combine it more as a uh, droning sound composition rather than once again get into something uh, literal. I think it would have lost a bit of that because it would have been less of a sound composition and more just um, sound emanating to put it in a maybe something that was slightly too represented. Actually, one of the aspects I like about it is that as you move around, because it's a circular uh, or a 360 degree, uh, you know, uh, experience, and that you you know as you move around the sculpture, the sound changes. That was one of the aspects of it that I liked, and I felt that that uh, that's something that I appreciate in a gallery context when that can be used because. Um, uh, often in in uh, media uh, cases and just in the electronic world, they you know were reduced to surround or or, or if if at all or stereo listening and and it's uh, doesn't have the uh, the physical and multi-dimensional aspect that that uh, uh, that's possible in a gallery context. That was definitely one of our uh, objectives uh, with the piece, so that um, it doesn't have a fixed perspective. Yes, I mean I'm kind of. Well, we wanted my... it to be the source and kind of have that life represented through the sound as you move around it, even even though you're not looking at it. Yeah, and I think that that in itself is a complex 
interaction. Uh, one, well, one of the effects we want to create is that um, obviously you do get the changes. Um, it depends on the room. It depends on um, like you, you get the different phasing as you walk around. Um, because uh, we knew that people would approach it from a multi-angular uh, fashion, we wanted it so that their uh, physical presence would also affect the uh, piece. And also the, that it would change when there are more people in the room or less people in the room and engaged with differently. Is there anything you want to add before we conclude? I think the only thing we would like to um, do is obviously uh, thank uh, NASA for <laughs> um, exhibiting Hive. Uh, <laughs> Um, the other people we would like to thank are uh, Laura Mendes and uh, John Lochmere from uh, Lab Space because they uh, incubated the original, um, or they, they uh, incubated the project when it was first created. Um, it has since yet changed and whatnot, but uh, it wouldn't come into being without them. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Lab Space? So Lab Space is a uh, kind of arts collective and studio, and um, they had something called the Nomadic Noise Residency, um, which we originally created the piece for. Um, it was about a year ago, and all the pieces just had to do with uh, essentially sound. Um, the residency was a lot about um, sound walks and just opening up your ears and um, trying to, you know, as residencies do, make a piece based off what uh, you found inspirational at the end of the residency. So how long of a period of time was it? Uh, re residency was about six months. Oh, four to six months. It's almost hard to tell sometimes <laughs> when you actually think back. But it was definitely a, a very good experience um, and a very good community of people that uh, we were able to meet. That was Hopkins Duffield in conversation. Their installation Hive runs at the NASA space in Toronto until November 1st. You can find out more about them at hopkinsduffield.com. You're listening to Making Waves. My name is Darren Copeland. Making Waves is a radio program about sound art produced in Toronto by New Adventures in Sound Art. Next, we're going to listen to pieces from the Soundplay series. On October 18th, the performance will feature Sarah Peebles in her work Resinous Fold, which is a multi-channel piece based on improvisations with the Japanese reed instrument, the show. And people says about the piece, simple tones from individual pipes transform to rich, complex timbres as air flows through several metal reeds, travels up and out smoked bamboo pipes, and collides as it emerges from multiple points. Some indifference tones and interference patterns of sound emerge and create a striking, immediate music which envelopes the surrounding space in a sort of opaque cloud, at once mesmerizing, yet somehow unsettling. This is Resonous Fold by Sarah Peebles.
You're listening to WGXC. That was Resonous Fold by Sarah Peebles. She is a Toronto composer, originally from Minnesota. The concert on November 1st during Soundplay will feature an acousmatic piece by Quebec sound artist Vanessa Sorslavec. It's called Wrathful Vine. It's inspired by this short piece of text. The light of the moon is covered. The earth stands not still, but all things appear thunder. This is Wrathful Vine by Vanessa Sorslavec.
You're listening to Making Waves, which is produced in Toronto for WGXC Wave Farm by New Adventures in Sounder. You were just listening to Wrathful Vine by Vanessa Sorslovak. The last piece we're going to feature on the program is uh, Nora Lorway. It's an acousmatic piece called Zvangshi. It was composed at the EMS Stockholm and derives some of its sounds from church bell recordings in Slovenia. And uh, Nora Lorway is a Canadian composer based in the UK. Uh, much like uh, Vanessa Sorslovak, in fact, uh, both of them are doing their postgrad work in the UK. And uh, both are making acousmatic pieces in this case. Uh, acousmatic meaning that the work is uh, played without any visual reference at all to the source of the sound. It's another word for fixed media works. So like a film which is produced in a studio or in a, uh, in a non-real-time way, uh, these are sound pieces uh, that are films for your ears. This is Zvangshi by Nora Lorway on Making Waves.
Thank you for listening to Making Waves. That was uh, Zvakshi by Nora Lorre. To take us out to the top of the hour, here's a snippet of a piece by American composer Linda Antas called Iridescence. Thank you.